may remain standing for the reading of the word. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews. We are teaching and preaching this year through the book of Hebrews, pretty much verse by verse, passage by passage. And this is one of those passages, if you weren't just going through it verse by verse, you might want to skip it. Because it's maybe one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret and understand. And I would like to suggest to you as I read it that you don't try to intellectually grasp it entirely as much as you let the impact of it hit you emotionally. We're going we're gonna to spell out a few things, but just, just hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. passage falls in two parts. First is through verse 8 and then verses 9 through 12. Because of that it has kind of two subject titles that Mark has given to us. A terrifying warning and full assurance of lasting hope. That's exactly what we have here. The first part of the passage, the one I mentioned that's so difficult, is, is a terrifying warning. Because it is going to speak to us in strong terms about apostasy, falling away, rejecting Christ, a deliberate, willful rejection of Christ after having enjoyed so much of the benefit of Christ, yet still finally and ultimately walking away from him. This person that does that 
is the reprobate. The scripture is going to say here that it is impossible to restore again to repentance. It doesn't say it was impossible for the grace of God to save a great sinner. The grace of God will save a great sinner. He saved me, he'll save you. He will save to the uttermost those that come to God by him. For he ever lives to make intercession. Salvation is a wonderful, wonderful gift from God. And it extends by God's sovereign mercy and by his eternal ordination to the vilest of sinners, the chiefest of sinners. We're not talking about being so bad you can't be saved. What we're talking about here is being restored to repentance. Repentance is that turning away from yourself to God, that making that complete turnaround, changing your mind, changing your attitude, changing your disposition and your stance towards something. If someone turns away from God, turns his back on God, walks away from God, neglects and rejects, God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Where is the hope of repentance? How can one repent? Why would one repent? If they have so done what the Scripture says they've done, they have fallen away. That's that's the, the major concern of this particular writer in the New Testament is that people are falling away, apostatizing, moving away from Christianity. As we've mentioned almost every time, this this exhortation, this letter, which is also a sermon, was given to those who had a background in the Hebrew faith. They were Jews and Jewish proselytes and people that were steeped in the faith of Abraham and the Old Testament law of Moses and the promises of King David and all those things that constitute the Old Testament promise. And yet... They were in danger of falling away from that because of the persecutions, because of the difficulty, because of the fiery trial that had come upon them, because of of ethnic and religious prejudice against them, because of persecutions. There's just a lot of reasons why the hearers of this message might be tempted to back off and to slack. And that's what's happening here in these first few verses He lists six things, and he calls them literally the first words, the arche logos, the first principles, the first words of the things pertaining to Christ. And all six of them had their grounding and their background in Old Testament faith. In order to be a good Hebrew, in order to be someone that was faithful to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to all the prophets and all of the the uh, priests and leaders of the Old Testament, they would have some measure of participation in all of these things. Let me sketch it for you and, and just sort of look at it. Repentance from dead works. Dead works are those works that lead to death. Every prophet that preached, preached, turn ye, turn ye. Repentance was an Old Testament theme of every prophet. Repentance was part of Old Testament faith. You could be a good Hebrew and believe in repentance, and yet not follow Christ, not trust Christ, not move in the direction 
of Christ. It's possible to be a good Hebrew and have the other. Faith toward God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Monotheism. Faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Faith in the creator of the universe. You could have that. And still not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God come in the flesh, fully God in human flesh, and the Son of God in the Savior. Instruction about washings, the Old Testament, literally the words baptisms. The Old Testament is full of baptisms. New Testament baptism is a derivative of Old Testament baptism. There were washings of all sorts in the Old Testament. We won't go into any of them in any way in particular this morning, but there was a whole class and category of ritual cleansings and purifications You could be a good Hebrew, a good Jew, and really follow those washings and those baptismal rituals and yet not follow Christ. Laying on of hands, blessings, anointings, commissioning. There was a lot of laying on of hands. There was even the laying on of hands by the priest on the head of the scapegoat who took the sins of the people into the wilderness and far away symbolically from the sight of God and from his people. You could embrace all of that and never really follow Christ. Jesus himself knew this broad religiosity that the people enjoyed. The Pharisees were masters at it, but he insisted upon his way was a narrow way, a constricted gate. And few there be that enter. The terrifying warning here is that we need to be serious, not about religion only, not about spirituality, not about even the first principles of the doctrine of Christ. We must go to maturity. You remember last week he, he, he uh, rebuked them for the fact that they hadn't moved toward maturity, the discerning of things, the the sorting out. They haven't really been as serious and as explicit as they needed to be in their understanding and their practice of the Christian faith. So here comes a stern warning. Continuing on, the resurrection of the dead. You could believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did. It was taught in the book of Daniel. It was taught in the book of Job. It was taught in the book of Psalms. It was taught in the book of Genesis that the dead would be raised, that God would raise up. You could believe in the resurrection and not really be a Christian. And eternal judgment. You don't have to read very far in Old Testament religion to find out it was the Lord's judgment was first and foremost. The wrath of God was upon his people and upon the nation's time and again for sundry things, manifold prophecies against the wickedness and the depravity and the sinfulness and the oppressions of the people. God's judgment, eternal judgment, was upon them. But here's the problem. You can be up to speed on these first words, these ancient principles of biblical Hebrew religion. 
and still not have come to Christ and stayed with Christ. And so after outlining these six things that are first principles, but we must go beyond, we must lay that foundation but move on from it. It's interesting after telling them that they need to understand, they need to move to perfection, he is calls the basic principles of the oracles of God, it's almost like he says, you're dull of hearing, so I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but that's not how the passage reads. He doesn't say, since you're dull of hearing, since you're immature, since you need milk and not meat, I'm just not going to bother with telling you. Because He says, no, because you're dull of hearing, because you are in need of some real spiritual stuff, therefore... And that's the way the passage start us, starts. Let us leave the Let's move on. It's not our incapacity that's our problem. The Lord will provide capacity. It is our willingness. Come on, let's go. Let us move on. And that's what I would say to you this morning. Wherever you are in your Christian life, let's move on. Let's not regress. Let's not fall away. Let's not turn back. Let's not stall out. Let's move on to a Christian maturity, a, a maturity that requires some serious discernment. We talked about the Word of God is able to do that discernment. The discernment that's done in the heart is like that of a two-edged sword that is separating the joints and marrow and the parts of the carcass of the Old Testament sacrifice. And the Word of God does that in our hearts. And this is a stern word from the Lord, but it's just what the hard heart needs. It's what the wayward person needs to hear. It's what the rebellious soul needs to hear. It is certainly what was referred to in chapter 3 verse 12 as the evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. Those that are in that predicament, in that place, that are standing on the edge and have moved to the edge, and have not moved to the center and the core of the faith, but have just sort of enjoyed certain things. There are delightful things about the gospel, delightful things that God brings to us in Christ. And he lists five of them here that the folks can say that they have, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have been enlightened. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Isn't it delightful sometimes just to read the Word of God in its sublimity and its beauty? It's great literature. It, it, it inspires the soul. But it doesn't mean that you've been born again of the Word of God. You've just been enlightened. You've been informed. The work of the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. He stirs us up. He, he gives us a move in our conscience. He may even work upon us to work up sympathies and, and compassions for others. It may give us a resolve to do better in life. But none of that. While it's good, it's important, and it's part of our spiritual experience, we all have a testimony about our spiritual experience, it's still not coming to and remaining with Christ. 
It doesn't have the sacrifice, the fellowship of his suffering, the power of his resurrection. He mentions a couple of other things. He says, they tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Remember Simon Magnus in the New Testament church there in the early years when he saw the power of the apostles to perform miracles and he said, I need some of that. And he became a devoted disciple. He wanted some of that power. And there's a lot of people that are impressed with that. There's a whole movement, a whole branch of Christianity, very popular in our day, very popular in our country, very popular on television and in large meetings that is interested in the power of God, miracles, signs, wonders, impressive things. But that's not, that's not the real thing. This is a call by the preacher here who, who, by the way, in the very last few sentences of the epistle calls this a brief exhortation. And the word exhortation is the word, we get our word paraclete, which is the one that's called alongside to render comfort, to render aid. How in the world is this a paraclete passage? Well, it's because of this. And he changes as he moves into the second part. He says, we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Now we're going to talk about saving authentic, authentic things. And it all comes out basically in the fruit. Jesus said, by your fruits you shall know them. And that's what's put forth there in verses 7 and 8. The land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it. By the way, the rain in the Old Testament, the latter rain is a symbol and a prophecy of the coming blessings of the Spirit of God upon humanity and especially upon Israel and then upon the, the Gentile world. The latter rain that comes. The rain from God has always been seen as a blessing. The rain falls, though, on the just and the unjust, and it comes and it falls on the land, and it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated and receives a blessing from God, the blessing of the rain. The result of the rain being poured out upon the good soil brings forth an abundance of a crop. But you remember Jesus' parable about the soils? Remember the rocky soil that would spring up, but then because it had no root, Fruit wasted away. It's even worse than that here in the next verse. He said, but it bears thorns and thistles. It's not that it doesn't bear good fruit. It just doesn't, it, it, it is not that it doesn't bear good fruit. It's that it bears bad fruit. And it's the thorns and the thistles. And the thorns and the thistles in the Old Testament is the symbol of the curse. That was the symbolism of the crown of thorns placed upon Jesus' head. He was bearing the curse. It was the ground would bring forth thorns and thistles and all kinds of weeds and everything that would choke out the good crop. We find this even in the Old Testament in the parable in Isaiah 5 of the vineyard. The Lord planted a vineyard and he planted a beautiful vine and it brought forth bitter grapes. And This is what happened. The blessing of the Lord poured upon, upon people can bring forth the thorns and the thistles. Did you know that 
the manifold goodness of God upon you in common grace may in fact harden your heart because God has blessed you so much and you enjoy it and you don't know that it comes from His good hand and you don't thank Him for it and, and you're so blessed you don't need the Lord. Isn't that ironic? But it can happen. The blessing of the Lord, the rain, can produce in the stony heart, in the stony soil, thorns and thistles. And by the way, the parable says, and then we read it right here, that what happens to these thorns and thistles, this fruit of this faith or faithlessness, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. I think that's what makes this warning terrifying is there's once again this notion of burning, of eternal destruction. A lot of people try to deny the biblical doctrine of hell and lake of fire and a place where the worm dies not. The fire is not quenched. In fact, it's getting popular now in evangelical circles to completely deny the doctrine and even to kind of make fun of it. While we don't hold to a full-blown Dante's Inferno view, the scripture is clear that there is an awful, awful end. It's the word teleos. It recurs twice in this passage. In other words, there's a far, teleos means distance. There's something out in the distance that has to be considered. It's the end. And that's the whole encouragement of walking in the faith is that the path leads to eternal life. It's paths of life that the Lord leads us in, not the paths of the devil. The, the road to the burning and perdition is a road that's broad and easy and many enter therein and enjoy every step of the way. The Bible always warns us of this reality. But here's the encouraging words, and let me get to them quickly. In verse 9, he says, we speak of this way, yet in your case, he's speaking to a specific audience, and he uses the word beloved, only time it's used in this book. And that's that word that means the one who is loved specially. A special love. And that's the love that the Father has for His own. I have loved you with an everlasting love. It is a steadfast love. It's a faithful love. It is a, a love that fixes itself upon your redemption and does not ever give up the grip of salvation upon your soul. And that's what the love of God in Christ Jesus is to us. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish, burn, but have everlasting life. And that's the hope, the lasting hope of eternal life. He says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Well, there's a whole lot there. Let me tell you what it is. In this instance, the proof 
the validation of the authenticity of our salvation is, is shown in our outward works, not in our inner feelings and musings. In other words, we know, as, as John says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And this is, this is interesting. We're not saved by our works. But we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And the two that are mentioned here are the, the work, that is the work that's done in the name of the Lord, and the love you've showed for His sake in serving the saints. It's literally the word for deacon. <laughs> it means service. We're doing deacon work. You know what the primary work of the deacon in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament church was? Take care of the poor. Where are we taking care of the poor? What part of our offerings go to the poor? It's the alms. It's a big thing in the New Testament church and it was a big thing in the Reformation. God's people looked out upon the poor, which we always have with us for some reason. Actually, the Proverbs gives us four or five reasons why we have poverty. And the Lord calls us to stir up our bowels of compassion, our sympathies and our pity for the poor. There's an evidence right there. And serving the saints as you still do. And then finally he says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. You hear this? This is an earnest plea. This is not a casual thing. We treat it that way, but it's not. The same earnestness, we have the full assurance of hope until the end. There's the other mention of the teleos, the end. The hope is to the end. The, the perseverance of the saints is those that are really the Lord's will persevere through it all and be faithful till the end. That's the work of God in sanctification and in calling us and leading us. And then finally, so that you may not be sluggish, I like that word, <laughs> it literally means sloppy, that you may not be sloppy, sluggish, slow, almost with a retarded spirituality and a retarded Christianity. Don't be sluggish, but do these things. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And he's going to talk about in the very next sentence, God made a promise to Abraham. That's the way the, ver the next sentence starts. God made a promise. So what promises are we talking about? We're talking about the promises of God, the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit to come to all of us and those that ask Him, the righteous reign of King Jesus. All of these things are sacred and wonderful promises that are brought to bear in the fulfillment of them in Christ. And we are to come in that, move in that direction and follow, be imitators, mimickers. We should walk in the steps of those that, that have, through faith and patience, faith, belief, trusting, hoping, resting, striving, believing, knowing, obeying. That's faith. Faith and patience. It's a word that's used a lot in the New Testament, and the word means literally endurance. Those that endure to the end. 
shall be saved. Let me just tag that. Those that reject Christ and never, never, never come to Him authentically and really. In the end, there's a burning. There's a eradication and a destroying and a suffering and a dying. This is a serious passage. But that's how, that's how the Lord keeps us on the path. That's how the Lord keeps us built up. That's how he keeps us encouraged. That he gives us these warnings. So we're like the little child that's been warned not to run into the street. We're told, don't run into the street. And we don't run into the street. And guess what? We never get hit by a car. Because we've been warned and warned and warned. Don't touch the hot stove. Don't touch the hot stove. So guess what? We don't touch the hot stove. And guess what? We don't get burned. It's simple as that. Our Lord loves us enough as a father to warn us, to conjole us, and then all the while saying, but I expect better things of you. And I do. I expect better things of you. And the Lord, I think, expects better things of us. Let's press on. Let's move. Let's strive. Let's enter into the rest that has been provided.